Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are always at work. And um, we thank you for creating the world in which we live and for creating us and sustaining us and keeping us. We thank you that every breath we take is by your permission and your grace. I pray, Heavenly Father, you would slow us down enough to remember that. And in this moment, make us still that we might be able to see you, worship you truly, and that your spirit would be able to catch up to us, soften our hearts, make us willing and ready to live for you with our lives and all the work we do, and that you would receive all the glory for it. Through Christ our Lord we pray this. Amen. Well, good morning. During this Easter season, we are, are spending our time in the Psalms of Ascent. These are, as we have said, the, the Psalms that the saints would sing together on pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem for one of the festivals that took place there three times a year. And this morning, we come to Psalm 127, which was just read for you. But as we consider this psalm, we are immediately met with a problem that one scholar describes for us. Nothing in this psalm suggests pilgrimage. Indeed, the psalm's horizon is the settled state of city dwellers. Look at the psalm again, and you will see that this is indeed an accurate observation. The psalm's focus is on the work that took place back at home. Therefore, the, the saints traveling to Jerusalem who sang this song struck a most unusual posture for pilgrims because they're looking backwards on what they left rather than forward to what lies ahead. The psalm describes the work they engaged in back home that occupied their time and gave their lives meaning. Back home, they built, ho they built houses filled them with children and exerted great amounts of energy and focus defending those things, like watchmen positioned on a city wall. They rose up early and went to bed late so that they might be able to have bread to eat so that their basic needs would be met. And they de derived great pleasure and fulfillment from this work. It was hard work, but they benefited immensely from it. For instance, the second half of the psalm specifically details the joy and comfort that raising sons brought to fathers in that culture. They made them happy, as verse 5 describes. But they brought so much more than happiness. One scholar explains why the psalm concentrates upon the particular value of sons born to a man not too late in life. They would be old enough to protect their father in his declining years. If he were wrongly accused in the law court just inside the city gate, the scene described in verse 5, they would rally around, ensuring that he was treated justly and defending his interests in a way denied to those in society such as widows and orphans. They were God's arrows against injustice within the local community. Raising these kids, these sons, was important and meaningful work. But as the song goes, 
all of these good and necessary things are mere vanity when they are pursued apart from God. The countless hours logged, the intentional planning, the relational investment, the proactive defense, all of it is vanity apart from God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. The vanity that's referenced here is, is not the vanity of impossibility, but the vanity of meaninglessness. In other words, the psalmist is not saying that a house can't be built apart from God or that a city can't be defended apart from God. They absolutely can and have been. But all work that is done apart from him is meaningless, vanity. It's vanity because it will not last. This is the the point the author of Ecclesiastes was trying to make with his repetitive cry of hevel, hevel, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. The author of Ecclesiastes was searching for a meaningful life under the sun, as it were. And he searched for it through the pursuit of education. And he searched for it through the pursuit of pleasure. And finally, he searched for it through hard work. But the harder he worked, the more acute the vanity of his efforts became. And in chapter 2, he observes that no matter how hard he toils, I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. You can't guarantee your heirs will carry on and honor the work that you have dedicated your life to. And therefore, neither can you guarantee that it will be remembered, or even worse, that you will be remembered. Fading into the past as your work is forgotten. The people of long ago are not remembered. Nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. The author of Ecclesiastes recalls this, and he cries, vanity, vanity. And this certainly proves true from my experience. I couldn't even tell you the last names, let alone the first names of all of my great-grandparents. And yet deep within us is this burning desire to change the world, right? To do something important that will be remembered forever, to build something and defend it. And we're willing to work night and day to make it happen. I once had a a conversation with an ambitious young woman who was trying to express to me her dreams for her future. I asked her what she wanted to do in life, and she jumped right into her answer. She spoke for quite some time, but said nothing of any substance. All she was able to communicate were vague, unformed, embryonic ideas, but she was crystal clear about one thing, that whatever form these dreams of hers took, it was going to be huge. That was the expectation and hope that she reiterated over and over again in her rambling response. It's going to be huge. And I don't tell you this conversation to poke fun at this young woman. Actually, her answer was rather refreshing because she vocalized what we often don't speak aloud. Right? We talk of legacy and leaving the world better than we found it, much more reserved ways of saying that whatever we do, we really hope it's going to be huge. 
and it's going to last forever. There is within us this sincere desire for our work to endure forever. And often feeding that desire, at least to some extent, is our insatiable appetite for glory. We want our work to endure because we want to endure. And we can do that vicariously through our work if many years after our death, our work still inspires admiration in the hearts of those who behold it, like a painting by Edward Hopper framed and hung on the wall at Crystal Bridges that makes people remark, what a talented man he must have been. Now the Lord frustrated and interrupted the work of those who sought to make a name for themselves by building a tower that scraped the sky. And yet we assume the project that they abandoned because though the work was frustrated, our desires didn't change. We continue to speak like God did in the creation of the world and like they did on the job site at Babel. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. But we work in vain. Our work will not endure and neither will we unless we are working with God and for his glory instead of our own. And the only way we will ever do that is if we possess a firm understanding of the gospel. In the gospel, we are told that all our anxieties about being a person of consequence and accomplishing something truly lasting are settled in Christ. Jesus did not only die for us, he also lived for us. In his life and in his death, he did those things for us that we could never do for ourselves. He was perfectly obedient, fulfilling every one of God's laws. And he paid our penalty, which otherwise would have meant our death and eternal separation from God. But through faith in him, all that he accomplished becomes ours. Therefore, in Jesus, all the significance we long for is already ours. We possess it in him. In Jesus, our creator looks at us and and he says, you are my son or you are my daughter and with you, I am well pleased. He says this of us before we have have done anything huge and despite the fact that most of what we have done is rather insignificant. In the gospel, your significance as a person is declared apart from your work because your significance is found in the work that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. Therefore, Jesus has has set you free from fretting over your success or your failure. You no longer have to work for yourself and you can work for him alone. You're you're free from the the pressure to do something great because he's made you something great already, a child of the living God. And after having accomplished this on your behalf, on our behalf, Jesus did not stop working, but he continues to work on our behalf in the present and will do so for all of eternity. You see, Jesus has expanded our timeline for work through his resurrection so that like him, we work not just for this life, but for the next as well, which will endure forever. 
our hope and what Jesus has promised to us is not for a, a disembodied existence somewhere in heaven, but for a physical, embodied, flesh and blood existence on a new heavens and a new earth made one, remade to be glorious and perfect by God. And an example of this kind of enduring work in Christ was provided for us by the Apostle Paul in our New Testament passage for this morning. In Philippians 2, Paul anticipates that on the day of Christ, that is, the, day, the end of time when, when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead as we confess. On the day of Christ, Paul will be able to boast that all his work was not in vain. Why was this his expectation? Because the Philippians are holding fast to the word of life, the gospel the, that, the, that Paul preached to them. And therefore they will live forever with God. They'll live forever in the presence and joy of God. And though Paul worked in the world, his work in Christ had implications for the next and it will endure. And it's not just people who will endure into eternity. Tim Keller makes this point in his book, Every Good Endeavor. He writes, everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten, and everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will even be around to remember anything that has even happened. Everyone will be forgotten, nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is a God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain writes Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 58. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It turns out, therefore, that our desire for eternity, for our work to endure, and for our own endurance is not a bad thing. It's just that we can never satisfy this desire in ourselves during the brief 80 or 90 years we will be lucky to get on this earth. But Jesus fulfills this desire for eternity by working on our behalf and opening our horizons into eternity so that all our work done in him really will endure. And in eternity, our unfinished work will be completed. Our, our vague, unformed, embryonic ideas will finally come into focus and become a reality. So he has worked for us in the past and he will work for us in the future. And because he knows our, our, our ability to twist logic, he, he tells us to start that work for eternity now, and he will work with us. He knows that when we hear that he's worked for us in the past and will complete our unfinished work in the future, that we, in our, our tendency towards sloth, will lose any motivation to work in the present. And so he tells us that he will work with us even now. We can get a head start on eternity. He's not gonna wait, and neither should we. 
Again, in our New Testament passage for this morning, we hear Paul talk about this act of of participatory work with God in the present. He writes in verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who who is at work in you, enabling you to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, we are are God's co-laborers in this world. God works in and through our work in order to bring heaven and earth closer together. You may or may not know this, but the session for the past year or so has been writing a, a new mission, vision, and values for the church. And we're almost finished with this work, and we hope to share it with you in the near future. But our mission that we have articulated for our church is that we would exist as a church to glorify God by participating with him in the transformation of our lives, the community of believers, and of our world. We want to do work that will endure into eternity, but we recognize that whatever we do must be done with him and for him. Otherwise, it will all be in vain because all work that is done apart from God is all in vain. But the question still remains, How can you know whether you are working for God, with God, or for yourself? And the answer is found in verse 2. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. And it's this last line about God giving sleep to his beloved that shows us how to discover who we're working for. And this question of this last line is, can you stop? Can you rest? Can you leave the work alone and trust that God will still provide for you and protect what you have worked so hard to build and preserve? We began this sermon with the observation that it's strange that these these pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem should sing a song that's focused on what they left behind instead of on where they were headed. But they did this because in their singing, they were acknowledging that they had left that work in order to go worship instead. That that work is vanity unless they leave it. They demonstrated that they were working in faith with God and for God by leaving it all behind. This was an act of faith in God as their co-laborer who will continue to work in their absence. They were assuming the ancient rhythm that God laid out for us in the beginning of, in the beginning of work and worship. Work and worship. For six days we're to work, but the seventh is to be a rest a day of worship, worshiping the God who never stops working on our behalf. Rest is on short supply in our culture. We're always running at breakneck speed. And this has created all sorts of problems for our society, burnout and sickness and depression and anxiety, broken families, ruined marriages, the list goes on. But the absence of rest betrays something far more disturbing that we do not understand the gospel. We're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to become gods, immortalized through the work we leave behind, but it's all vanity. 
unless your work is done with and for God, and you will know that it is by your ability to leave it alone. That's why I'm so glad you're here this morning. Because you've left it alone. You've come to worship. And while we worship, Christ is working on our behalf, and in that we rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.